Good evening. The least likely, the least likely to men are often the most likely to God. This morning, we saw that mainly from the Old Testament. We looked at a lot of examples where we saw that God always seemed to use the youngest, the oldest, the smallest, the weakest, the seemingly most insignificant, those who thought to themselves that they were totally incapable. And God used those folks. And he used them in a mighty way to accomplish some of the biggest, some of the greatest, some of the most incredible turnarounds of unbelievers in the Bible. And the fact was when they simply... Those who knew God would simply take his word when he said, go do this, I'll be with you. They spoke up and they told those who did not know him what a great and awesome God he was. And look at, look at the things we covered this morning. As we consider these thoughts, it's utterly critical to our whole Save One Soul in 2019 theme. Talked about this morning, the way I started out was talking about, people get nervous when the preacher starts talking about those things starts talking about individuals, talking to others about Jesus. When that happens, many are tempted to pull a Moses. We saw that this morning from Exodus 3 and 4, and, and you, you know what I'm talking about. Pull a Moses. Oh, Lord, I can't go, not me. You've got to have the wrong guy. They either want to pull a Moses, go all Gideon, who, me? Or run and hide like Saul of Kish among the equipment. And we do this because... According to our own logic and reasoning, I mean, we each know ourselves better than anybody else on earth. And according to our own logic and reasoning, we're just not adequate. We're just, we're just not up to the task. We just don't feel or think or, or believe that we're able to go and, and to do this. You know, that is the one time probably in our entire Christianity when we totally tend to forget Philippians 4.13. We can have Philippians 4.13 on our Bible cover. We can have it on our necklace. We can have it you know, up in our house, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. But the one time we forget we can do all things and Philippians 4.13 goes right out the window is when we start being encouraged to go talk to other people personally, one-on-one, -on -one, about Jesus Christ. And even though we might seem in our own minds to be the least likely person on the planet to go tell somebody about what we found in Christ, God says, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and, and my ways are not your ways. God tells us, he said, my thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours. I know what I'm doing when I ask you to go do this. It is typically those whom we would deem the least likely to succeed, such as ourselves, whom God in his divine wisdom actually desires to use, wants to use selects to use to get the job done. I have an old illustration, and it's, it's really one of my favorites. I want to read it to you, and I want you to think about the apostles. It's fictitious, obviously, but it goes along with this theme so well. It's an old edited version of a parody that I've had for many years, and the title is, If the Apostles Were to Apply for Positions of Leadership Today. If the apostles were to apply for positions of leadership today, 
It's like a formal letter. It says, to Jesus, son of Joseph, Nazareth, Galilee. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the names of the 12 men that you have selected for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our evaluation tests. We ran their results through our computer, analyzed them, and then we arranged interviews for each of the 12 men with our psychologists and our vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all of these tests are included in this packet. You will want to study them carefully. As part of our service, we like to make some general statements. The enclosed conclusions are provided only after and as a result of our staff consultations. They come at no additional cost. It is the opinion of our staff that most of your nominees are lacking. Most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and the vocational aptitude needed for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. Think about the apostles. Just, just think about them. Jesus selected them. And these are probably the least likely men that you would ever, by human wisdom, select if you were trying to accomplish what Jesus was trying to accomplish. This letter goes on. Tells you why the apostles are not qualified for this. Number one, they do not have the team concept. We would strongly recommend that you continue to search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven <laughs> capability. For example, here's what they found. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, think about our Sunday morning adult class, the two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would undermine morale. We feel it is also our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus have radical leanings and registered high manic depressive scores. <clears throat> Only one of the candidates, though, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness who meets people well and he has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places and he is highly motivated, capable, ambitious, and responsible. We feel fully satisfied in highly recommending Judas Iscariot to be your chief financial officer and vice president of operations, basically your right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem, Judea. Jesus, when he wanted to pick 12 men, he went up and he prayed. Luke says he prayed all night before he selected these men. 
And who did he pick? Not governors, not the well-educated of the Sanhedrin, not the Pharisees, not Gamaliel. Who did he pick? Pick fishermen, tax collector. Pick people that nobody else in the world, if you were starting some major venture enterprise, nobody else in the world would have picked those people because humanly looking at them, really, fishermen? You're kidding me, right? That group of ragtags, you've got to be kidding me. The only one with any promise looking at it from a physical standpoint is Judas. He got a good eye for money, right? He knows how to get the job done, right? You see, when our Lord chose the place where his son, when God chose the place where his son was to be born, he picked one of the least likely places that a king could come from. Matthew 2, 6, and that was Bethlehem, little Bethlehem, the least. And when he selected men to go and tell the world the message of Jesus Christ, he picked people that were the least likely, people that you wouldn't even think would be considered in that light. It's not the only time, and I know we've, we've talked about these, a couple of these stories before, but I really want you to think about them. Turn to me tonight in your Bibles to Mark 5. And, and we talk about this guy a lot, and, and I'll strive not to maybe so much, but, but this is just so incredible to me. We think today that in order to go talk to somebody about Jesus, we've got to have gone to seminary, or we've got to spend 50 years sitting in the pews, or whatever it is we happen to think. Mark 5, verse 1, just amazes me. They came to the other side of the sea, Mark 5, 1, to the country of the Gadarenes, and when he came out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. One of the other Gospels would tell us that this man ran around naked, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. This was a wild man. This was not the guy you'd invite over to Sunday dinner, okay? It's not the guy that you want dating your daughter. This guy was up there. This is the kind of guy that you would go and get clubs and try to take down or kill like a wild animal if he was up there or close to you, around your house, up in the mountains. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. You may try to go to sleep at night with this guy up in the hills behind your house, wailing and screaming and... Enter Jesus. Jesus gets the demons out of him. We know the story. And look at verse 18. When Jesus gets into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus didn't permit him, but he said to him, Go home. Tell your friends. Go home to your friends and tell them. He said, I want you to tell your friends. You see, Jesus, in his human form, could not go to every single individual. And so... He would tell others to go tell others to go tell others. And he says, I want you to go tell, notice he didn't say, I want you to go tell you know, the rulers, I want you to go hire a missionary. No, he said, I want you to go tell your friends, the people you run with, the people you associate with, the people that you have a social relationship with. Go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. 
Now he's had compassion on you. He didn't say go teach him about baptism. He didn't say go teach him about the one church. And I realize the new covenant's not been instituted yet. But he said, go tell him what I've done for you. And go tell him how compassionate I've been. Has God been compassionate to you? Boy, the mercy of God overwhelms me still. The grace of God overwhelms me still. I can tell somebody about that. I can tell somebody how I was lost in sin. We sing the song, right? I was lost in sin. I was sinking. God saved me. And that's what Jesus, in effect, tells this guy, go tell your friends what wonderful things he's done. Now, this guy didn't have a PhD in religion. <laughs> this guy was out of his mind a couple hours ago. I mean, not like we say something, I was out of my mind. No, he was really out of his mind. He didn't have a good reputation. People that say, well, he's a fine, upstanding gentleman. He used to work down at, you know, with Peter's brother. No, no, that's not who this guy was. But he went back and told people about Jesus, and they were amazed. You know, another person, the last person we'd probably pick on the face of the planet if we had this message that had to go out was, was the woman in John 4. Turn there. The Samaritan woman of John 4, number one. She's not full-blooded. Jewish, if you will. She was Samaritan. She was mixed race, and the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans, and that's another whole sermon and story, but Jesus comes along here in John 4, verses 3 through 6, and I know that you folks know this story real well, too, but you need to take it home with you tonight and, and really think about it. Verse 3, Jesus left Judea and he departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria, and that's key again because the Samaritans and the Jews just couldn't stand each other. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well about six hours, about noontime. The sixth hour, <coughs> noontime. Desert-type climate, sun's at its zenith, it's hot. It's hot there at noontime. And as Jesus is sitting there by the well, there's this woman comes along. Now that was very unusual. And the reason it was unusual is because the women in the morning, in those climates, in that culture, the women would typically go out, all the women from the surrounding villages to the well early in the morning. The big, the big water pots, the big heavy water pots, and they would go out to the well to draw water early in the morning because it was cool. And so he's sitting here by the well at noontime, and here comes this one lone woman. All of the other women, presumably, if, if, if the picture is what it typically was in, in that culture and climate, have already gotten their water hours ago. And here comes this woman. She's out there to draw water at noontime, in the heat of the day, so different from all the rest. Now, it is presumed by most commentators that the reason that she came at noontime and that it's significant that she came there at noontime in the heat of the day to do this heavy work is because of the reputation she had. Jesus, as you know in the story, is going to go on to say, you've been married five times and you're living with a guy now that ain't your husband. Small town. Y'all you know how news goes around in a small town, how reputations develop, right? This woman had one. And it weren't pretty. So most likely, she's out there in the heat of the day because if she walks out there with the other women, you know, there's the whispers and, you know, that's, that's you know what she's like. You know what she's, yeah, we all, yeah, and they guess. So rather than come out there alone with the rest of them, she come out there alone, period. 
even though it's the heat of the day. And so she and Jesus have this exchange, and, and we're well aware, but don't miss that it was noontime. And Jesus talks to her. And he's not, getting, he's not getting his message across on his first approach. So Jesus says, well, that's too bad for you. No, no, he doesn't say that. He's not getting his message across trying to come at it from this direction, so he comes at it from another direction. He completely changes direction on her. Go call your husband. Come here. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have. You've been married five times. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And, and they have this conversation. But she is not somebody that you would pick to think that she could tell anybody convincingly about Jesus. And yet, if we look in verse 28, the woman, when the disciples come back, they, you see in verse 27, when the disciples come back, they marvel that he talked with a woman. On top of that, she's a Samaritan. On top of that, she's a five-time divorcee. At that point, the woman leaves. She left her water pot. What was the whole reason she's out there at noontime? Get water, right? But she is so consumed with Jesus Christ that the whole purpose for which she came out there in the heat of the day is totally forgotten. Do you catch that? At that point, that earthly pursuit that was so important a few hours ago, it doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters now is Jesus Christ. Is he the one? And she leaves her water pot there in the dirt. And she went her way into the city, now watch this, and said to the men, yeah, this woman could probably talk to men. She'd been married five times. And she talks to the men, and she says to them, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Good teachers ask questions. She didn't give them all the information. She said, he told me everything I ever did. Could it be the Christ? Even she asked questions. She piqued their interest. Now, it's at this point, they went out of the city and came to him. Now, here's the thing. Ladies, you ladies that are married, <coughs> you live in a small town. Woman's been married five times. She's shacking up with some guy now. She comes back into your little tiny village with this reputation of hers. Her reputation's so bad, but probably it's the reason she'd go out in the heat of the day and get water all by herself. She says to your husband, hey, you need to come out here with me. Ladies, how many of you are letting them go? <laughs> probably not going to happen unless she's pretty convincing, right? Can't imagine how convincing she must have been with her reputation. Tells the man, you've got to come. Could this be the Christ? And guess what? They went. That woman had to have been just incredibly convincing that she had found something very special in Jesus. They went out of the city and they came to him. If we get down to verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman. Because of what she said. Because... She went back, folks, listen, if, if the reason she was out there at noon and not out there with the other ladies or because the other ladies were hostile toward her because of her reputation and being a, you know, a, a bad woman and an adulteress and all of this, then when she went back to that village, she went back to what you could consider a hostile audience, right? Didn't matter to her. What did she do in front of that 
probably hostile audience. You know what she did? Told them about Jesus. And because of it, verse 39, many of them believed the word, believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. They believed because of what she said, but it intrigued them enough that they went to see him and when they went to see him, many more believed. Isn't that good evangelism? Go pique somebody's interest about Jesus, say, is, is this the answer? And get them to go listen to the very words of Jesus. So many more of them believe. Look who Jesus picked. Then there's the lowly beggar, the man born blind in John 9. I'm not going to turn there. Another very familiar story. But once again, you have this. Seems there's a lot of blind beggars in Scripture. You have this, this, this boy born blind and the disciples and everybody seems to think it's because he or his parents sinned. And Jesus said, no, that's not the reason. The reason is so that. God might be glorified in him. And so Jesus heals this young man, and this young man goes before the Pharisees. His parents sort of kind of threw him under the bus. But he goes before the Pharisees, and he tells them all about this Jesus. They wind up throwing him out of the synagogue. <coughs> Jesus finds him. And he winds up worshiping Jesus. Do you know the blind man in that story was the one with the most sight? Out of all the people listed in that story, the blind man, his parents, Pharisees, out of all those people, at the end of that story, the only one that could see clearly enough who Jesus was to bow down and worship him was the man that was formerly blind. But he went in front of a hostile crowd and he told them about Jesus. Isn't it amazing who God, isn't it amazing how God works with people that just ain't qualified? With people that only known him for a few hours. I want to briefly mention Saul of Tarsus. Turn with me to Acts 9. If you had to pick one person in the first century, in the first few months after the resurrection of Jesus, the day of Pentecost, if you had to pick one person for God to say to you, hey, go talk to him. The last person on earth would be Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was out to kill Christians. So in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 10, it says this. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go. Are you noticing how go is in all of these? You know what the first word in gospel is, don't you? Go. Go and tell them the gospel. God said, go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints here in Jerusalem, or to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. I want you to stop right there and I want you to consider something. Ananias, according to Acts 22 and verse 12, was, quote, 
a devout man according to the law having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. This is a good man. Good man of God. What did he say? You don't really want me to go talk to him, do you? Do you know who this is, Lord? And as I read that, I'm thinking, Ananias is thinking, okay, not only about his own personal safety, but this is the last person on earth. I can't believe you want me to go, Saul? This guy? Surely not. Did you notice verse 15? See, to Ananias, he might have seemed like the last person, the least likely that God could have wanted. Here's a Christian killer. Why could God possibly want him? But did you notice verse 15? God says, you go. And here's why. He is a chosen vessel of mine. He may not look like to you the guy who's going to turn the world around. He may not look like to you anybody that would ever preach the gospel in your wildest, but God said, he's the one I've chosen. I've chosen him. He's my choice. He may not be your choice, but he's my choice. God chooses those, or uses those, I should say, whom we would deem the least likely, including ourselves, Somebody said to me, one day I'd be a gospel preacher at some points in my life, I said, <laughs> you got the wrong guy. Folks, the fact is that when it comes to telling people about what an awesome God he is, God is not looking for the greatest, the biggest, the richest, or the smartest. He's not. He is not looking for the most elegant, eloquent, knowledgeable, or most prominent. God is not looking for those with the most flawless good looks, despite, never mind. He is not looking for those with the most flawless good looks, the most flawless pedigrees, the most flawless resumes or reputations, even though Saul of Tarsus had a really, really good pedigree. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for people that love and appreciate him enough to go share their love and appreciation with somebody else. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 26. You know what the church is made up of? Church is made up of, yes, saved, once lost people. But the Apostle Paul, in writing to the congregation of the Church of Christ in first century Corinth, he wants them to remember the same message I've preached to you now twice today. God's not looking for the biggest, smartest, richest, strongest, most eloquent, elegant, all of that stuff, most well-educated theologians in the world to go tell people. And so Paul reminds our first century brethren in Corinth of that when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. In other words, you know, y'all don't have PhDs. That's not who the church is. Nothing wrong with having one. If you got one, good for you, but we don't all have one. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen 
and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Remember Gideon? God said, I'm cutting your 32,000 down to 300, in effect, and he does. He says, there, now when you go and win, you'll know it's from me and not you. Same message right here. God uses the lowly, the small, the seemingly insignificant, the seemingly unprepared to go and to preach to and to reach those that are big and mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him. It's because of God. It's all about God. God said he'd go with you. It's all about him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You know where that comes from? It comes from Jeremiah chapter 9. Please turn there. Once again, God emphasizes it's not about the mighty. It's not about the most knowledgeable. It's not about those that are considered most likely in the eyes of men. But it's those that are considered least likely, sometimes by themselves, to go, that God utilizes on such a grand scale. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight says the Lord. God says, I'll tell you who delights me. God says, I'll tell you who brings me delight. And I love that word delight. You think of an Oklahoma summer. You think of 110 degrees in the shade. Boy, that cold ice cream tastes pretty good, don't it? We call it a delight. We're going down, oh, you know, Tasty Freeze or, or you know, this, this, I'm going to go have some good cold ice cream on it. That's something that just delights you. Just makes you, that's the idea of delight here. God, we can delight our creator. We can delight him. How do we delight him? Not by glorying in those things mentioned in verse 23, but by glorying in the fact that we understand and know what an awesome God of loving kindness and judgment and righteousness he is. Of course, we know from the message of the New Testament we need to not only know that, but we need to go tell people that. That's how we prove that we know it. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can you glory in the fact that you understand and know God enough that you will go out and share what you know and understand about him with others? Can you do that? I'll tell you somebody who could. This formerly demon-possessed guy, Mark 5, he could. He could, he could glory in that he understand, understood and knew the Lord and what an awesome God he was because he went back and told them all. The Samaritan woman, she could do it. She, she found Jesus, and she could glory in the fact that she finally got it and understood and knew him. And she left her earthly pursuits in the form of her water pot behind in the dirt. She went back and told the entire village, despite the reputation she may have had there, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and many believed. I'll tell you somebody else that could do it, the beggar that was born blind in John chapter 9. He certainly wasn't quiet or shy about what he found in Jesus, despite his parents' reluctance to speak up. 
nor was he afraid of the religious training and expertise and the doctorates in religion, maybe, if I can use that term, and yes, I'm speaking symbolically, but the, the doctorates in religion that Pharisees had. Didn't intimidate him at all. He knew Jesus. He wasn't afraid of their training. He knew Jesus. And here's the thing. If you stop and think about all three of those cases, the man in Mark 5, woman at the well in John 4, the boy born blind in John 9. Stop and think about all three of them. None of those, we have no reason to believe that any one of those three people had known Jesus for more than just a couple of hours when they went and told everybody they told. A few hours. They didn't sit in church pews or synagogues for a Saturday after Saturday after Saturday that we know of. There's no indication. They only saw Jesus and knew Jesus for a few hours at best. We have no reason to believe any of them had any formal training in, theolog in, in theological seminary. I can say that. None of them ever went to Bear Valley School of Preaching. And yet in the short amount of time, just a few hours, that they had known him, they had fallen so deeply in love with Jesus Christ that you couldn't shut them up. They couldn't help but go and tell everyone they knew about what an awesome God he was and what they had found in him. And this is one of the critical keys as we close tonight. Did you notice also, not only in all three of those stories do we have no reason to believe that they'd known him for more than just a few hours, at best, did you also notice with all three of those accounts that were so successful, did you notice the point at which every single one of them began when they started talking to others about Jesus? They all began at exactly the same place. They began at the exact same place that the Apostle Paul so often did. You notice where they started? Here's where they started. They went and told others what Jesus Christ had personally said to or done for them as an individual. Mark 5, go back and tell the cities what the Lord's done for you and how he's had compassion on you. The woman at the well, she goes back and she says, I met a man that told me everything. He told me, my personal experience with Jesus, this is it. Can he be the one? And the boy born blind said, yeah, he healed me. They didn't start with some, some, you don't have to start with people with study of Revelation. Just tell people what the Lord has done for you. What they do with that is up to them. You see, the things that God has done for us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all of those things aren't just things that we sing about on Sundays. They're not just things the preacher preaches about or the men pray about when they gather around the table. They're things we need to tell everybody we know. It all begins with sharing with others what God has done for us. Can you do that? We live in a world that is so broken. We live in a world that is so busted and so beat up by Satan and sin. Families, homes, kids, life. Our world is so beaten up. And those people that are out there hurting, some of them don't even know they need help because hurting's all they know. But you and I have the answer to their pain, don't we? Is Jesus Christ still, as we refer to him, the great physician? 
We have the cure that will help those people to get better. They're suffering a terminal illness, and that's sin. And it's terminal, Romans 6.23. Right here in our hands, just like a, a medication, just like a, like a shot, like a prescription, we have the cure for their terminal condition. Let's share it. Let's share it. Tonight, if you're here, and you're not a member of the Lord's Church, you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you have been and you need the prayers of the church, we want to encourage you tonight with this song to come forward and get what you need right now as we stand and sing.